That's the reason the BOC and the Fed are saying we're not messing around anymore, even if we have to inflict a lot of pain on the economy. And they use that word now. They say we know there's going to be pain. So basically, don't expect the first time you see signs of real pain in the economy that we're going to backtrack, because that's what they trained everybody to do over the last many years, right? In the US, yeah. you get a crappy jobs report, all of a sudden, the stock market goes up because investors were saying, oh, we got a crappy employment report. Yay, we got bad news. The Fed is going to step in and drop rates or print money in order to offset this negative result. And so we've lived in a world where bad news has been good news for a long time. What the BLC and the Fed are doing now is they're saying, guys, we know there's going to be bad news and don't treat it as good news anymore. We're expecting bad news. We're going to live with bad news. We need bad news because ultimately we have to kill demand to bring inflation back down. And what they won't say, because it's not politically correct, is we got to stop wages from rising because that's the thing that really scares us. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today in the show, I have Dave LaRock. I get Dave back from time to time. He is one of the smartest guys in the Canadian mortgage industry when it comes to understanding rates and policies. As he says, you can't make predictions, but you should be informed. And every time I have a conversation with Dave, I feel more informed and I learn a ton from him. And so I think it's gonna be a great conversation. A couple of takeaways from my conversation with Dave. First, he talks about how rates are gonna stay around for higher and longer, that we're probably not gonna get a soft bounce on this in terms of being able to slow down the economy. It's probably gonna be a little bit painful. And that he gives advice on you know, what he would say to clients right now, borrowers, fixed versus variable. I think it's a very useful conversation. Also today, I talked to Tom Hall about how to use a CRM at different points in your career. Before I jump into that, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform designed specifically for Canadians. Very easy to use from a borrower's perspective, as well as brokers. It's got some really cool features. One of them is Smart Docs. So as you're filling out the app, it's figuring out exactly what documents you need. When you get that application in, you can then search Lender Spotlight. It has all rates and lender guidelines. It's extremely robust, so you can figure out where to send the loan. And then before you hit submit, it's got smart submission notes, so it pulls key data from the application, as well as there's a, depending on the lender you're sending it to, it'll remind you of some of the things that lenders, policies, the whole idea is to make it easy for you to get your loans approved faster. Check them out at lendesk.com finmo check out this episode okay so hey thanks for coming to chat with me and uh, i always love talking to you about what's happening in the rate market and i follow your blog and check it out and stuff so what have you been noticing in the current environment i'm curious what you've been noticing when it comes to rates yeah well you know first of all earlier this year and probably the last time we spoke my assessment would have been that Variable rates were going to rise, but they probably weren't going to get up quite as high as fixed rates. And ultimately, with all the debt we had outstanding, the economy was going to be hit pretty hard and harder than it has been historically. And given the fact that 11 out of the last 14 tightening cycles have led to recessions, that we would probably get a recession that would force the BOC to start cutting. And in my view, you know, several months ago was that that would probably happen in the first half of 2023. In terms of what's changed, inflation is now broader than it was. When we last spoke, Scott, and I don't remember the exact date, the main causes of inflation were food and energy prices. And and the big spike in food and energy prices were effectively being caused primarily by the war in Ukraine. The food and energy prices now have come off quite a bit. In fact, energy prices are lower than they were before Russia invaded Ukraine. And food prices are still high, but they've certainly dropped from their peaks. 
And ultimately, if those were the main drivers of inflation, then the old view of inflation starting to come down and getting a fairly mild recession and having rate cuts starting to show up in the second half of next year would all still be, I think, in my view, a reasonable thing to expect. What's changed is now most of the rise in inflation, certainly the rise in inflation that's concerning the BOC and the Fed, is core inflation because higher prices are now spreading out beyond food and energy into the broader economy. And that is much more alarming to central banks because the broader inflation gets, the more momentum it gets, the more likely it is that inflation will be harder to contain and that more rate hikes will be required. And that's really what's happening. We're in the midst of this right now. The market is shifting. The Bank of Canada and the Fed have been saying for a while now, we're going to have to increase by more than the market thinks. For anybody in the market that's listening to what we say, you're not priced correctly right now. We're going to have to increase by more than we had thought previously and that you guys still think. And ultimately, we're not thinking about rate cuts in the first half of next year. Rate cuts are going to take longer to materialize. So right now, the market is pricing in after being hit over the head by the BOC and the Fed, the BOC two weeks ago, the Fed this week, the market is pricing in more rate hikes and a more sustained period of higher rates with rate hikes now not looking like they'll start to materialize until 2024. So that's what's different. You mean rate cuts 2024? Rate cuts, sorry, yeah, yeah rate, rate cuts in 2024. So that's really what's different is that inflation is broader. It's looking like it's going to be stickier. Headline inflation is coming down. And anyone who just looks at headline inflation will say, well, wait a second, headline inflation is falling. Why are the central banks sounding like they need to be more aggressive with inflation? It's because core inflation is rising, which is a far greater concern to them. Now, all that is to say, I have a whole bunch of questions. So the more you talk, the more questions I have. So when you're ready, I'm going to hit you with a bunch of stuff. Okay. So, All yeah. right. Apologies. Let because me I want you to dumb this way down for me. I'm tracking with part of it, but I'm like, yeah, I need to be dumbed down. So I'm going to come to you, but go ahead. Okay. Finish your thought. Sure. No problem. So let me give you the punchline. The punchline is I think rates are going to stay higher for longer and we're going to get more rate hikes throughout the rest of this year and possibly in early next year. I think the BOC and the Fed aren't going to be caught asleep at the switch twice in a row. And I think they're going to hammer the economies, the U.S. and Canadian economies, to make sure that inflation is brought under control. That said, when we do get rate cuts, I think it'll be because we have a much more severe recession than we previously thought. And I think there will be more rate cuts coming. So I think the rate cuts will take longer to materialize. But when we get them, I think we'll get more of them. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. So core inflation rising higher than what's included in core inflation. From my understanding, it's changed a few times. And so has it changed recently or the way they measure it, has it been static? Okay. Core inflation has been very steadily rising in Canada and the U.S. for a long time now. And it's just starting to fall a little bit in Canada, but it's still rising in the U.S. So if you were to think about core inflation versus headline inflation, so when we talk about inflation, we're really talking about the consumer price index. And the consumer yep. price index is the central banks, or well, in this case, Statistics Canada takes a whole basket of prices and says, we're going to measure whether these prices are rising or falling. And we're going to take all these price changes and we're going to roll them into one number called the consumer price index. And the main consumer price index is what I refer to as headline inflation. And when people say inflation fell from 7.6% down to 7%, they're talking about headline CPI. Now, as with any statistical measurement, there's noise in that number. 
for example, there are some really volatile things that push the headline number up or down regularly, like food and energy prices, especially energy prices, price of gas, price of oil. If the price of oil or gas goes up or down by a lot, it can make inflation look very different than it is. You could have stable prices in 95% of the economy, and if the price of oil is going up fast, well, first of all, you're going to start to see other prices rise because the price of oil affects lots of other prices. Everything, yeah. Lots of things are shipped and they have to do it. They need fuel for different parts of the process. Yeah, but it might only spike and then come back down, depending on what the cause of the rise in prices is. And so what our policymakers say is, don't just show me headline inflation, because that includes a lot of the noise that is you know, volatile and could sort itself out over time. We don't want to overreact. If it looks like headline inflation is rising because we're getting a spike in oil prices, but it's temporary, anything we do to react to inflation rising is going to be an overreaction because if those prices come back down, then- It's kind of like CPI is like a whole bunch of kids in class and one kid's acting out and you're like, hey, exactly. we don't, the whole class does not need to go to detention. But uh, if every kid is acting out, then it's they got a bigger problem. That's exactly. Like- yeah, great way to put it. Okay. You know, like, for example, there was a refinery that had a big fire and it was a big refinery. And because it had a big fire, they had to take their operations offline. That created a temporary shortage that caused oil prices to go way up over the short term or to rise. And the Bank of Canada looked at that and said, well, the refinery is going to get fixed and oil is going to come back online from them. And ultimately, we're not going to respond to this rise in inflation caused by this fire because it's going to get sorted out. It's it's and, temporary. Okay, so then let me ask you, what is, so there. then if that's what core inflation is and how the bank account looks at it, what has caused it to rise systemically? Why is it going up everywhere if food and fuel prices, which are pretty big impact, everybody's affected by that. Why is everything else going up? What's caused that? Sure, great question. So first of all, core inflation, just to finish that last explanation, core inflation says, I'm going to take the really noisy kids of the outside of the classroom, and I'm going to look at the average kid in the classroom to judge the behavior of the classroom. Okay. So you've got a Perfect. couple of kids running out in the back who are making the old class look like it's just like, like it's a gong show, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. If there's 30 kids in the class, we're going to look at the middle 15 kids and say, based on their behavior, if they're still behaving fine, then we're not worried. Yep. And that's what core inflation is. It takes a lot of the volatility and the noise out and tries to isolate the middle part of the curve to say, is that part moving up or down? Now, the reason why core inflation is rising, there's several reasons. Number one, oil and food costs are pervasive. They affect lots of other parts of the economy. When you think about oil prices, if energy prices rise, all businesses have to pay energy costs. So business costs more broadly will rise if energy costs are higher because it's more expensive for businesses to produce if energy costs rise. Okay, so that's number one, is that energy prices, if they stay high for a long period of time, can affect input costs. Another cause of rising prices right now is wages. Wages now are going up, and this is what really freaks our policymakers out, because so right now you have people saying, inflation's 7 or 8%, I need a raise. I can't afford to pay my bills. So they go negotiate higher wages, and when they do that, business costs go up because labor costs are typically the highest input to every business cost. And when wage costs rise, all of a sudden, everybody's raising their prices. So higher labor costs are a big contributor to rising core inflation. In terms of simple explanation, that would be, as far as I'm concerned, the main explanation. One thought on that is that you've got such a limit in terms of, it's very difficult to hire people right now. Like there's just, so 
in order to get people, you got to pay them more. You got to take them. And so the coffee shop person, my daughter works at Starbucks and she makes like 17 something an hour. Right. And so as that wage goes up, so then the business, of course, is going to raise all their prices. The customer is going to eventually pay for it. It's not like right. it's like, oh, OK, great. You're going to get a higher wage. But then your prices follow eventually because then people raise prices. And and that's the next point I was going to make, which is that what our central bankers live in mortal fear of and what happened in the 70s is we got what's called a wage price spiral where prices went up. People said, I need higher wages to afford these higher prices. And then they got higher wages. And then prices went up again because now wages were higher and costs were higher. So prices went up again. And then because prices kept going up, people came back and said, you know, that raise you already gave me to account for higher prices. Well, prices are higher again. I want more waging. Right. Now, in the 70s, it got out of control because a big chunk of the labor force had union agreements and the union agreements had cost of living adjustments in them. So basically, the way cost of living adjustments worked is they said, if inflation is rising, you don't have to come back and negotiate for higher wages. We're going to automatically increase your wages. So prices went up, all the union contracts reset. Again, no negotiations built into the contract. Happened automatically. Prices went up again. Cost of living adjustment. Prices go higher. Cost of living adjustment. Nowadays, we don't have cost of living adjustments to nearly the extent that we used to. And unions are a much smaller percentage of the labor force. But... Because we have a labor shortage now, individuals yeah. have a ton of bargaining power that they didn't have. Four or five years ago, if your daughter went into her Starbucks employee and said, um, you're not paying me enough, my costs are going up, I want to raise, they'd say, well, there's five people behind you in line, and if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Nowadays, she might be able to squeeze an extra buck or two out of her manager because it's hard to hire if she's a good employee, and they've had a job posted for a month, and they can't fill it. Maybe she can get a couple more bucks out of this. So that bargaining power combined with higher prices is compelling workers to ask for higher wages. But what scares our central bankers is because labor costs are so pervasive in the economy, when prices rise and labor costs start rising, prices rise higher, labor costs start rising higher, we get this wage price spiral. That's the reason the BOC and the Fed are saying we're not messing around anymore, even if we have to inflict a lot of pain on the economy. And they use that word now. They say we know there's going to be pain. So basically, don't expect the first time you see signs of real pain in the economy that we're going to backtrack, because that's what they trained everybody to do over the last many years, right? In the US, you get a crappy jobs report, all of a sudden, the stock market goes up because investors were saying, oh, we got a crappy employment report. Yay, we got bad news. The Fed is going to step in and drop rates or print money in order to offset this negative result. And so we've lived in a world where bad news has been good news for a long time. What the BLC and the Fed are doing now is they're saying, guys, we know there's going to be bad news and don't treat it as good news anymore. We're expecting bad news. We're going to live with bad news. We need bad news because ultimately we have to kill demand to bring inflation back down. And what they won't say, because it's not politically correct, is we got to stop wages from rising because that's the thing that really scares us. Interestingly, last month, Tip Macklem was talking to the Manufacturers Association, I think, and he said to them, don't increase your wages yet because the price increases that we're seeing are going to be temporary. And he basically came as close as he could to saying, if you guys increase wages, then we're going to be stuck in the weeds for a lot longer. So ultimately, the mm-hmm. BOC and the Fed need to bring that wage inflation back down. And the other thing, Scott, and people don't talk about this, but this is very interesting to me. 80% of the S&P 500 companies in the second quarter of this year reported record profits. A big chunk of price increases that have happened to date 
haven't been because of higher costs. They've been because a lot of businesses have looked around and said, wait a second, everybody's talking about higher prices and higher inflation. This is a great time to increase our prices. And they've done it on a discretionary basis before their costs have actually risen. So that's reflected in profit margins. We've got record profit margins in 80% of the S&P 500 companies right now because they recognize now's a great time to raise our prices. Now they might argue- It's kind of like back when COVID happened and they started dropping service levels and saying, hey, we've actually got to adjust our service. And so I talked to a guy who owned a car dealership and he said that he was making more money and he got rid of a bunch of staff. And he said, I may have overdone it and get rid of his staff but people's expectations sort of adjusted to, okay, I guess it's COVID. I got to give you a break because, you know, you don't have staffing or whatever. And so the businesses are kind of adjusting in some cases in advance of these things and riding the wave a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that's and, and they might say in their defense, Scott, they might say, well, we're not greedy. We're raising prices preemptively because we think our costs are going to rise and we're just doing it as a defensive mechanism. But right now in the second quarter of this year, the costs haven't risen and the profit margins are the best they've ever been. So I think what the BOC and the Fed, in terms of the BOC and the Fed's approach, they're probably thinking if we can bring demand back down, we can wring some of those profit margins out of pricing. Now companies can charge what they want and people will pay the price. But if the economy slows, the saving rates fall, job security becomes more of a concern, people won't be as willing to pay higher prices. And when companies see that their volumes are falling, maybe those fat profit margins start to compress a little bit. And that too will be something that the BOC and the Fed will be happy to see. But really, it's about rising labor costs first and foremost. And the fact that they don't just come out and say that is more for optics. You can't have a central bank saying people shouldn't be getting the kind of raises they're getting because it's going to screw up the economy. So they kind of dance around it. But when you look at wage costs rising at five plus percent, interestingly, employees would say, would say well, inflation is 7% and my wages just went up by 5.4%. So my real wages are still minus 1.6. Even with the wage increases I'm getting, which are the most they've been in years, I'm still not keeping pace with prices. But when the central bankers and the policymakers look at it, they say wages going up by 5% is a recipe for continued inflation. And that's the thing that we have to stomp all over. got to watch. Okay. So like how has the, you know, the pandemic and the increasing, you know, the amount of government spending that was pumped into the economy, do you think that has had any effect on inflation or what are your thoughts on that? Because there was, Absolutely. you know. Uh, Absolutely. It was the combination. Monetary policy seems to get all the blame, but it was the combination of aggressive fiscal policy and aggressive monetary policy, right? Because when you think about what happened during COVID, we know now that we overpaid everybody, that lots of people got money that didn't need it, and the government blew their brains out with fiscal spending. Right. So at a time during the pandemic, when because we had supply chain issues, the supply of goods went way down, and at the same time, we supercharged demand with all- We gave them more money, so then they were willing to pay more for those goods. It was a perfect storm. So you limit supply, you massively increase demand, and then you lower borrowing rates. So what do you get? You get lots of increase in asset prices. You get price bubbles. You get lots of inflation because there's a shortage of goods. People are willing to outbid each other and pay more because they've got all kinds of excess cash. And where do we find ourselves now? Really high asset prices, house prices crazy high, and inflation out of control to the point where the central banks are now in a corner and they have to start raising rates. They got to pop the asset bubbles and they got to kill demand. And that's the pain part that we're now looking at. The challenge that we have though, Scott, is it can take up to a year to two years 
for rate hikes to hit their full impact on the economy, to exert their full bite. And if you're the Bank Canada Fed, you got to tap the brakes now and figure out how much braking do we need to do now to slow the economy to the appropriate level a year or two from now. And in Canada, we've got record high debt levels. So every precedent the Bank of Canada can look at for the effect that rate hikes will have is magnified by the fact that we've right. got record high debt levels. So here we are in a situation where the BLC and the Fed are saying, we weren't aggressive enough early enough. We were wrong on inflation. We've lost some credibility because we let inflation get out of the bag. We let the genie out of the bottle. We can't take a second hit. We've got to err on the side of over-tightening now, which we tend to do anyway, because we've got this lag effect where we have to look at the economy now and say, how hard do we have to hit the brakes so that a year or two from now it slows appropriately? And ironically, you know, they've talked about, well, we think we can achieve a soft landing. Garbage. It's not going to happen. It's no. not going to happen. There's just yeah. no way. And people look at the slowing we're seeing now and they say, oh, GDP is already slowing. Canada's lost jobs for three months in a row. This is a sign that rate hikes are having an impact. That's not true. What's happening now is almost irrespective of rate hikes. There is some psychological impact, certainly on the market of all these rate hikes, but the real bite from rate hikes hasn't kicked in yet. So right. the slowing that we're seeing now is entirely separate from the slowing that's coming from the rate hikes. And the concern that a lot of people have is they say, if we're already slowing now, and we've got the cumulative impact of this sharp series of rate hikes on record high debt levels coming in 12 to 24 months, What's the economy going to look like then? And that's why I wrote a post recently and said, the BOC really has to think about the risk to its credibility of continuing to make these soft landing claims. It is lunacy to, right, to right. argue. It's like saying that before when they wouldn't talk about the pain you're going to have, they can't say that you're going to have pain, but you're going to get over it real quick. No, no, it's going to be pain and you're probably going to limp for a little bit. There's going to be some, right? right? So you got to recover from the surgery we're going to do to you, which is not going to be real pleasant. So, right. Well, uh, how ridiculous do they look now, Scott, that they said in 2020 that rates were going to stay low for a really long time and Canadians could count on that. Right. And now they're doing all these rate hikes in the middle of the economy already slowing with record high debt levels. And they're saying, we think we're going to get a soft landing. To me, at some point, like you said, you got to just look people in the eye and tell them the truth. And the truth right now is we know we're not going to have a mild recession and have a soft landing. We've gone too far and we got to pull hard now to come back the other way. And it's going to hurt. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I want to ask about mortgage brokers and real estate market. So let's talk about maybe real estate market first. So what do you think then, if this is going to be a prolonged for the next, say, 12 months in your estimation, what effect will that have on the real estate market? You know, that's tough to say, Scott. I'll answer the question, but I don't want to project more confidence than I have, because I think the real estate market is a very difficult thing to predict. And of course, you come back to the argument of, well, there are positives and negatives affecting the real estate market, right? We've got Record high immigration levels. We've got a housing shortage of supply. Homeownership levels rising now. rents. We've got yeah. rents going through the roof. Like rising yeah. rents, homeownership. So there are tailwinds still for real estate. There are lots of things to suggest that demand for real estate isn't likely to go away. And the question is, what impact will this have? I can tell you, when you look at what happened with interest rates, interest rates went like this, and house prices went like this. Okay, that happened, and now interest rates are going like this. So. Logically speaking, if we were in an economics class, you would assume house prices have to fall if interest rates are rising, right? If the cost of borrowing decreased and that caused prices to rise, then a sharp increase in borrowing should cause house prices to fall. What's interesting though, Scott, is when you think about rate increases in Canada and the impact they've had on the real estate market, we're just now getting to a point where rate hikes have a really increased level of impact. Think about the rate hikes. 
The first time rates started rising from the high 1% to low 2% range, everybody was still being qualified at 5.25%, right? Because the contract yeah. rate plus 2% was less than 5.25%. So the first three hikes by the BOC increased borrowing costs, but had zero impact on affordability. On qualification, yeah. Then we had a rate hike where all of a sudden fixed rates, well, it wasn't a rate hike that did it because it was the bond market that did it, but we had a period of a couple of months, this was asinine by the way, we had a period where fixed rates were up at 5%, but variable rates were still at 3%. So during that period, if you wanted a fixed rate, you had to qualify at 7%. And if you wanted a variable rate, you could still qualify at the stress test rate of 5.25%. It was asinine because right. the way our policymakers designed the stress test, we were now funneling all the marginal borrowers were most stretched into variable rates. Into work. variable rates, yeah, yeah, totally. And those are volatile. And regardless of whether you think fixed or variable is a better choice academically for which is going to save money over the next five years, if you're a stretched borrower, the stability of a fixed payment is more valuable than any guess about what fixed or variable rates are going to do. But so let's go back. We had initial rounds of rate increases only affected actual borrowing costs, but not affordability. Then five-year fixed rates went up above variable rates. But affordability still wasn't really impacted because people could choose a variable rate and still qualify at 5.25. Then we finally got to a point where variable rates were approaching fixed rates. And that meant that from a qualification standpoint, now affordability was being impacted. And now borrowing costs are higher, affordability is being impacted. And we've got trigger rates happening on variable rate mortgages with fixed payments, which is most variable rates. Most of the lenders, brokers work with do adjustable rate mortgages for variable, but most of the variable rate mortgages out there are fixed payment variables with major banks. And those trigger rates are now kicking in. And that just kind of happened the last time the BOC increased. So every time the BOC increases from now on, instead of just borrowing costs being affected or just borrowing costs and affordability, now, every rate increases from here on out is going to affect borrowing costs, affordability, and trigger payments. And again, right. when you look at the rate increases we've had till now, you can't really say, well, based on the impact we've seen from them thus far, which again, it's all been this year, so the impact is still very muted and it hasn't had its full impact yet. But going forward, the rate hikes that happen from now on, on an incremental basis, will have much more impact. And that's a really important point that mortgage professionals should understand. So back to your question about real estate markets. Over the short term, Scott, I have to believe buyers of houses are saying, I want to be much more cautious. I want to assess the market. I don't want to be in a hurry to buy because I think prices could soften. There's a lot of people who are buying assignments, who bought assignments now, people who put down deposits on new construction condos who never had any idea that they would ever close and assumed they'd sell an assignment. There's a lot of fire sales going on with assignment sales. What we haven't seen yet is a big rise in inventories. Right now, Prices are coming down a little, but inventories haven't changed. If we see a lot of inventory hit the market of distressed sellers, which is still yep. possible, we won't know for the next 12 months whether or not that's going to happen, then yes, prices should very definitely drop. But we still have record immigration levels. There's still lots of Canadians with high balances, lots of cash on their personal mm -hmm. balance sheets standing on the sidelines. It feels like there are people waiting to buy who would come into the market. So the question is, how's it all going to wash out? Are we going to run out of buyers before we get too many distressed sellers? Or is the economy going to exert enough pain and our rates going to get high enough where we get a flood of listings? Right now, it's kind of in a holding pattern. I don't know which way we're going to go. My sense is prices should drop and we should see some increase in distressed sellers, but we haven't seen it yet. Right, right. Okay. And then what's the strategy right now for mortgage brokers? So you're a mortgage broker and 
Like, how do you advise clients variable fixed? You go shorter terms. I know that every you know loan is going to be different, every situation, but give me some general thinking that you do when you're looking at mortgages right now or advising a client given this very funky market we're in. Sure. Well, I mean, let me get this out of the way first. For first-time buyers and for buyers on a very fixed income, I always lean towards fixed rates, not because I think they're going to win out, but because ultimately you got to know your borrowers and you don't want people who can't afford to take on risk to be taking on an undue level of risk. And variable rates right now, regardless of what we think may happen, are riskier loans. So I think you got to park whatever subsegment of your business is first-time buyers and people on fixed incomes that aren't likely to change. I think those borrowers are best suited for fixed rates most of the time anyway, but certainly more so in volatile times. If you get a strong borrower who says to you, which do you think is the better bet? Academically, which do you think is going to save money over the next five years? I think five-year variable rates are still likely to save money over five-year fixed rates. We've had a spike in rates. I don't know if it's going to last another year or two, but I think rates are going to come down. And ultimately, if you lock in a fixed rate today, you're locking in damn near a peak. And if you're with a major bank and you've got a huge penalty to break your mortgage, you're stuck basically for five years. What a great selling point for brokers who are selling fixed rates to be reminding people that when fixed rates spike up like that, you want to make sure that your mortgage contract has fair penalties so that if they drop back down in the next couple of years, you can break that mortgage at reasonable cost and take advantage of that savings. If you sign with a major bank, their penalties are so high with a fixed rate mortgage, you're Yeah, stuck. you'll get hammered. There's no way that's going to be. Yeah. yeah. And guys, the major banks might sharpen their pencil by five basis points to steal the deal from you, but they're not rewriting their mortgage contract. So if you want to attack your competitor, hit them where they can't really do much about it. And they're greedy with their penalties, their fixed rate mortgage penalties. When I worked at CIBC years ago in the mortgage division, a third of all the profit we made came from the penalties that we charged on our fixed rate mortgages. So wow. if you're looking to compete, warn people, hey, fixed rates have spiked. If you still want a fixed rate today, just make sure your contract doesn't hammer you with a penalty that's five times higher because then you're stuck if they drop back down midterm. That's a key yeah. point I think everybody should make with everybody. Yeah. Back yeah, to the academic really question, I think five-year variable rates have a good chance of saving money over five-year fixed rates. If people can live with the short-term volatility and the fact that variable rates are probably going to go higher than fixed rates over the next six to 12 months, that seems to be a pretty widely held belief. Sounds like a reasonable view in my view. If you like a fixed rate today, I think a two or a three-year fixed rate makes more sense because it gets you through this short-term volatility and gets you back to the market sooner. Um, right. You uh, can then reassess and who knows if it goes into variable that time or whatever the situation yeah. is. Or yeah, fixed come back reassess. down. Yeah. The key is, Scott, uh, a couple of things I want to make sure that I emphasize. I tell everybody, I start out, I say, look, I'm going to answer your question, but I want you to know my opinion in two bucks will get you a hot cup of coffee. I spend a lot of time researching this stuff, but at the end of the day, nobody knows and the risk is yours, not mine. So I'm going to tell you what I think, but ultimately you've got to be confident in your call. And if you're going to toss and turn it like worrying that you're going to lose too much sleep, you should always go fixed. And if you go variable and you convert a year from now, Chances are, if you're converting because variable rates are going up, fixed rates then will be higher than the fixed rates they are now. And going variable to start with and locking in a year from now will probably be more expensive than just going fixed now. So basically, if you go variable, you want to commit to it as a long-term yeah, strategy. Yeah, stay, stay the course or don't take it. Right. right Imagine yourself hopping on a boat and heading out to sea. You can always pull the chute and convert. But at that point, you're not saving money. You're effectively taking on a greater expense. And anybody that takes a variable initially and converts a year or two out 
is more than likely going to regret the decision. In other words, they're going to look at it and say, I would have saved They're going to feel dumb twice. They're going to feel dumb. They felt dumb that he took the variable and then switched to fix. And they're going to feel dumb in two years when they go back down. And now they're stuck in the fix and they can't get out of it. So it's like, yeah. uh, you can't win either way, right? All right. So and one more um, point to make, Scott. Okay, go ahead. Um, yeah. You know, people now are feeling the effects of much higher variable rates than they had planned for. And as brokers, we've been crazy busy for the last couple of years. We're not crazy busy right now. I think most of us would say that. Things are picking up a little now, but I've got a bit more time on my hands. I am calling my variable rate borrowers proactively and having conversations with them about, okay, can we put a little bit more on your payments now so that you don't feel the shock and the increase of every BOC rate increase? Can we look at reamortizing your loan? Are there other ways that we can remove some of the stress you're feeling now because your variable rate's gone up by more than you expect? You're not going to make any money on that call. That is a client management call. But I can right. promise you, if you're invested in this business for the long term and you want to be doing this 10, 15 years from now, these calls are worth their weight in gold because two things are going to happen. The person on the other end of that phone is going to be glad you called because you're an expert. You can give them advice. You're counseling them. Yep. It's not lost on them that there's no commission waiting for you at the end of that call. And they know that. And they're going to appreciate that you're treating them as a client and not as a transaction. And you're going to build a lot of loyalty with that client. And a few years from now, even if things are good then and rates are back down and there's not as much volatility, they will not forget that when they were worried about this stuff, you proactively called them to help them out and you will be rewarded for that loyalty. Secondly, you want referrals. People send gardening tips or happy birthday emails and say, can I have a referral? Well, good luck. You probably don't get a lot of them. And even if you did get a referral, they probably just said, this is my broker's name if you're looking for a broker. The yeah. kind of referrals that I get are people sitting at a dinner table worried about rates going, you know what? My mortgage broker called me out of the blue and spent half an hour walking through options with me. And at the end of the call, I felt so much better about my position and how things were going. And we came up with a couple of ideas to make things more manageable. The people listening at that dinner table are far more likely to see real value in terms of what I provide and to call me. And I'm not selling at that point. When their friend right. has explained to them how I handled that. So guys, if you have the extra time now, invest in your long-term business, do these things now. Don't just see the transaction in front of your nose. Look at this as an opportunity to build long-term client relationships and build long-term success. I promise you it will pay off in the long run if you do it. Right. That's really, really good. Okay. So I got a couple of questions here and somebody had asked, Jim Pearson says, would less income tax fix inflation since people will be taking more money home? Or what do you think? Like, who knows? That's a you know somewhat of a loaded question, but what are your thoughts on tax, lowering the tax rate? Do you think that would help? I love the idea of lowering the tax rate. I'm definitely in favor of that at all times, but yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of the question, if we lowered the tax rate, that would put more money in people's pockets. And the more money people have, the more of it they're likely to spend and the more demand there's likely to be in the economy. So in actual fact, more money in consumers' pockets would be bad for inflation, not good for inflation. Right now, yeah. We'd be happy about it, but it wouldn't be good for inflation. Not yeah, because we'd have, right. You know, I was chatting with my son the other day about the velocity of money, that the government actually wants money moving because if money's not moving, they can't tax it. Like it when you buy something and then they take it and then they buy something, the money gets taxed and taxed and taxed. If we go into a recession and people stop spending when they're fearful, then that actually becomes the problem for the government. They make less money too. They don't want the economy to die. Like at the end of the day, they're not going to be like, hey, we're going to just stomp this down and then kill all you know growth because it would be a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but okay. So another question somebody asked was, are there any useful statistics on the inflationary effect of COVID lockdowns in China? I don't even know what that, uh, this is from Chris Murphy. Hey, Chris, I haven't chatted with you in a long time, but how would you answer that question? 
Well, sure. So China, guys, has what's called a zero COVID policy. They basically lock down cities. I don't know if you guys have seen the videos online. It's pretty scary, but it's kind of eerie. You see it like nobody around, right? Like, yeah, they locked down the cities. In fact, early in COVID, they welded the door shut on apartment buildings so people couldn't get out of their apartment buildings. There are videos you can find online of people who are in an IKEA, and there's an announcement over the loudspeakers saying, we've just found out someone in the store has COVID, and we're locking you in the store in the IKEA for like 48 hours until we can test everybody. And you see videos of people literally trying to run out the door before they shut the doors behind them. Of all the places to have to get out fast, IKEA would be the worst. Their exits are impossible to find. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, <laughs> yeah, um, you're like I gotta follow the arrows. I'm like, damn it, I can't, I can't, you know. Uh, anyways, keep going. Yeah. So long story short, when China has such an intense zero COVID policy and they lock down cities, including cities as big as Shanghai, they are interrupting the global supply chain because when those cities are locked down, they're not producing, and there are lots of companies around the world depending on China the supply of goods. So lockdowns in China are bad for inflation insofar as they interrupt global supply. And for as long as China has zero COVID policies, that will be bad for inflation because it will interrupt uh, global supply chains and it will affect supply. Remember, inflation, guys, is high because demand is higher than supply. The central bankers can bring demand down. They can't do much for supply. But if demand comes down by this much and supply is improved by this much, then you're back in balance. If you're like this and supply can't go up, demand has to come or down. Supply keeps, yeah, or supply keeps doing this, right? You know, um, right. So, so lockdowns like, in China yeah. are bad for supply. Okay, Chris, a great question. I would not have thought to ask that. Somebody says, hey, Dave, Lauren, I love your blog. What are your most trusted news sources? Who helps you with your writing? Or do you manage all of this yourself? So you got a fan here. It's like, you got, uh-huh. you got a fan. <laughs> okay, well, thanks. I'm glad you like the blog, Lauren. So... I read a lot. I read the Globe. I read the Financial Post. There's a guy named John Malden out of the US I subscribe to. He has a free newsletter, which is great. I subscribe to David Rosenberg's daily newsletter. That you have to pay for, and it's not cheap, but he's excellent. And I read CIBC's Economist, Avery Schenfeld, love Benjamin Tull. You can sign up for their newsletters. Bank of Montreal, same thing. So I can read these reports. If you go online, you can bookmark these pages and come back to them. Basically, guys, and we get these daily emails from our industry that have links to different articles. And if the titles look interesting, I'll check them out as well. You want to become a student of this stuff. It isn't a matter of you can just sit down for an hour and become an expert. This has to become part of your daily practice. Just Because it's like, always in flux and it's always like you can get out of date pretty quick. Right. And like you say, the narrative's always changing, but at the end of the day, you're going to learn as you go. Like there'll be a term you don't know and you'll Google it. There'll be something in almost every article you read where if you're curious enough to go investigate something that you didn't understand fully, you'll be building onto your knowledge base. And just like if you take up meditation, you know, the first week you try meditation, you get some benefits and you're okay at it. If you do it for years and years, you get really good at it. Well, it's the same way. Give yourself, I think, as a mortgage broker, you should always be able to, again, nobody wants you to predict the future, guys. People think that they say, well, why should I study what's happening with the economy and learn about where interest rates are headed if I can't predict the future because I want to go out there and make people think that that's what I could do. Well, that's true. But you know, you don't call your stockbroker and ask him to guarantee if the stock you're thinking of buying is going to go up or down. And that's not the value the stockbroker provides. You want them to know something about the stock, something about the sector, something about the economy surrounding the stock and the sector. And that's the value they add. That's really what you're trying to do. You're trying to become an informed participant. Call yourself a student of economics. And to me, an hour a day, if this is your industry and you're committed to it, you should be spending an hour a day. Get up, 
Start your work day an hour earlier, sit there with a cup of coffee and read this stuff. What you'll find, guys, is that the more you read and the more you understand, the more interesting it becomes. And after a while, it won't seem like work anymore. You'll look forward to it and say, oh, yeah, I can't wait. You know, believe it or not, when the Fed gave its policy statement, like I was really keen to read the policy statement and start going around the Internet and reading what different analysts thought of what the Fed said. I'll watch the press conference to hear what Powell's saying. I'll read the transcript like I kind of geek out on this stuff now because I'm into it. I find it interesting. Right. And to me, that's part of the value we have. You make it interesting to me. And I, I like this stuff to some, you know, I like understanding it a little bit. But so one other question, how often do you produce blog content? You spend about an hour a day, you said, doing your research, learning. How often and how long does it take you to create content? I write on Sunday. So I read all week and I make notes as I go. And then on Sunday, I sit down and I do the blog. Probably how many words me- is your typical blog post? Anywhere from... On the low side, a thousand to anywhere uh, fifteen hundred, maybe as much as two thousand, depending on if it's a big post. You got like, a lot to say. The, the Bank of Canada's monetary policy report. Call it about fifteen hundred words. It takes me about three to five hours on a Sunday. And again, you know, like I'm done at about ten o'clock on Sunday night. A lot of times, it's just because if it's a nice day, I want to go for a run or hang out with my kids or go for a bike ride. So. I'm trying to build my topic and come up with some notes and stuff during the week. But Sunday's the day I sit down and write. And I have two awesome parents who read and edit every post. You told me, yeah, I've told this one. So they edit it for you. They're like, hey, that's so they help you with it. My dad is a full-time investor. So he reads it from an investor standpoint. And my mom is a former English teacher and a former professional editor. So she cleans up all the grammar. And again, she's very intelligent, but she doesn't follow this stuff as closely as my dad. So she might read something and say, you're going a bit deep here. I'm not sure the lay person can really understand it. You might be losing your audience. And I've probably done that a few times on the call, even though I'm talking to a bunch of mortgage brokers. <laughs> at the end of the day, you do have to always ask yourself, who's my audience? And you don't want to talk over people's heads, people visiting topics less frequently than you do. You know, you're helping them out by making things accessible to them and you don't want to overcomplicate, which is always a challenge. Right. Okay. Last question, if you can answer that, because we thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks for this amazing content. So somebody asked ask the question, if somebody's in a variable and they want to go fixed, are you recommending if they do to go with it, just convert to a two or three year term if it's a possibility to them? Because I mean, I think, you know, I haven't looked into this recently. My underwriters would know the question of this, but if somebody's three years into a variable, can they convert to a two year fixed or do they have to always convert to a five year? And it's probably lender specific, right? Uh, no, everybody has the same rules. So you can convert at any time, but you have to convert to a fixed rate term that is equal to or greater than the time okay. remaining on there. your mortgage. Right. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that so, changed. That's what that's, I remember that it used to be that way. So I'm just... Yeah, you can't shorten your term as a result of converting from variable to fixed. In terms of what I'm recommending, there, guys, it really depends on the borrower. Anybody that I've put into a variable rate mortgage has already passed through that filter I talked about of are they a first-time buyer and do they have a high fixed income? Then you have to ask yourself, is it driving them crazy? How much sleep are they losing at night? Are they in a fixed payment variable or an adjustment payment variable? What's their balance sheet like? Is this just pissing them off or are they really stressing about this? Are they having trouble making ends meet? Because keep in mind, up until now, converting to a fixed rate has meant accepting an even higher payment because when variable rates were at four and a half and fixed rates were at five and a quarter, anybody converting at that point was voluntarily taking an extra hit after already being upset with the fact that the variable rate was rising. So I think you really do have to go Borrower to borrower to come up with the answer to that question. I really don't think there is a one size fits okay. all. Okay, no, but we want a one size fits all. I want the one. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, thank you for coming to chat with us. I will definitely get you back in uh, you know a few months and check in and see what you've been learning. If you're cool with it, because I always learn stuff, and as I say, I always feel smarter. Have you uh, checked out Rob McLister's newsletter that he has? It's actually really good. 
you know what? I haven't subscribed. I probably will because Rob's a super smart guy. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's I, really interesting. And he puts a lot of time into it. And I always get some ideas from it and stuff. So it's definitely one of these tools I think is useful. But anyways, thanks, Dave. I appreciate you. Thanks, guys, for listening to this. And we'll see you on the next show. Peace out. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening to that conversation with Dave. Hopefully you picked up a couple of good ideas. Go check out his blog. He gave a whole bunch of resources there if you want to up your understanding of mortgage rates and how everything works. As I said, Dave's a super smart dude. And in this next conversation, I talked to Tom Hall from Blue Mortgage about uh, CRMs at different stages in your career. Hey, Tom, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. Great to be back. So, hey, what topic are we going to dive into today? Well, what I wanted to kind of get into a little bit today, and it's something I talk with a lot of people about, and I think I wanted to share it here. So, you know, of course, with us and, and our CRM, people are always asking, okay, how do I use it? And that sort of thing. And my response back has always been kind of, hey, depends where you are, really, right? And I think this really speaks not only to the CRM, but, you know, your career and how to think about things. But, you know, I think it's what I want to kind of get into today is saying, okay, depending on where I'm at in my journey as a career, what should I be thinking about as it relates to, you know, the CRM and my client interactions? Where should I be focusing and what are some really successful people in the same, let's call it career stage as me doing as it relates to, you know, that sort of stuff. So I want to kind of break down the three big stages we see and what kind of is entailed in each of those stages. Right. And how they use the same tool, but exactly. have slightly different focuses because of complexity can change and stuff. So I think it's a great topic. So, okay. What's the first yeah. sort of stage where you see people, how they're using right. you guys. Right. And of course, kind of where we see people start is what I call kind of that rookie stage there, right? Where, of course, everyone has been and everyone starts there. And I think it's a really kind of unique stage because, you know, well, like the three we're going to talk about, you're going to be focusing on different things. And where we really see it is really kind of two areas as a rookie. One would be the what I call just the lead management. So whether it's, you know, your friends and family or, you know, some referrals that you have, or if you're doing online stuff, so being able to stay on top of that, being able to set up, you know, automated drips so that as people reach out, you're responding right away, you're being super attentive and you're really giving them, you know, the time and energy that you want to show that you can bring to the table, right? So being able to have a system that can manage that and even automate some of it. So it just makes that a little bit easier. And then the other side that we see at that kind of rookie stage is building realtor relationships. And honestly, this is sometimes something that people don't think about for the CRM, but we're always big advocates saying, hey, realtors in a way are kind of like your clients, right? And so in the same way you would nurture a client, you know, being able to, you know, reach out to nurture those, to be able to explain the value that you can bring as a mortgage broker, I think it's hugely valuable and having, you know, the right CRM or even some of the right automations in place can really help that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that on the rookie stage, it's really, like you said, lead management and then file management. So like, where's that mm -hmm. file right. is your yep. priorities. It's like, okay, but as your business grows, what you're going to need your CRM to do for you typically is also going to become more sophisticated and robust. So once they make that transition, so I'm assuming the next stage is going to be experienced or growth phase. So what would that look like? Yeah, yeah, I'd call it maybe the growth stage, right? Where, and I think this is one of the more exciting parts. I think I love chatting with people at this stage where it's like, I'm no longer that rookie. I've kind of done those things, you know, that I was just mentioning well. Now I'm getting to the point where I have so much business, I can't keep on top of it all. So now I'm thinking about bringing on maybe an assistant or something like that. And I think it's a great move. It's something, you know, whenever anyone asks me, I encourage them completely. But I think it's about, you know, doing it in a smart way too. 
right? That, you know, if you bring someone on, they're not just sitting there staring at the wall for the first <laughs> month or so. And, and honestly, of course, we really recommend the CRM being able to help with that. You know, in one way that you can very quickly explain, you know, what's my process? What are the things we do? Because, hey, you've already laid that out and you have stages and you have steps that people can follow but also being able to stay on the same page too. Now, you know, two people might be working on the same file. What has each person done? Where are we at? What needs to happen next? It can get tricky when you're just doing that over text or emails or whatever that might look like. Mm -hmm. But if you can have a centralized place to be able to share that type of information, it can really speed things up. And for, you know, that person in the growth space who's just hired their first person, you get to see that ROI a lot quicker, right? So being able to use the tools that maybe you're already using but in a slightly different way to allow you to, you know, take advantage of the investments that you're making. Right. And it allows you to scale actually, because, you know, on the front end, using a CRM to help you with lead management and file management in the growth phase, it really becomes more about team management. And now, because yep. you usually have multiple people, you know, it's a multi-step process and making sure everybody's on the same page. So starting out with a CRM allows you to kind of grow into that and it makes it much easier than trying to like, as you said, keep track of all of the stuff that's going on with your files. And like, I can literally yeah. click a button and within your guys' platform, and I can see exactly what's funding this month, last month, you know, it's pretty slick and I can see what stage everything's at, who it belongs to. So anyways, yeah. And I don't actually use it on a day-to-day basis. I just keep an eye on it because I'm not sure, actually the person who's submitting the files, right. but I like to be able to <laughs> right. like check it out. Right. Okay. Absolutely. So you got the rookie phase, yeah. the growth phase. What's kind of the next phase that you'd say where brokers can take advantage of having a good CRM set up? Yeah, I think, you know, I call it maybe the winding it down phase. Maybe that's fine with the veteran phase a little or bit. Retired, think, or retiring, yeah, maybe. Yeah, retiring, maybe. Freedom right? 55, <laughs> right? Like, who does that? Freedom, what? Was that Trailer Park Boys? Good. I don't know. What that, or that was something else, maybe. I don't, Freedom but, 55 uh, was actually uh, like, you know, that was their whole thing. But I, nowadays, I don't think that's the case. But Yeah, anyways, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry. There yeah, you that go. That kind of winding down or transitioning out. Okay, so talk to me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, what that might look like, okay, you know, you've gone through the growth phase and built a really solid book of business. And I think it's a matter of two things. One is, you know, still servicing those clients as much as you want to or need to. So staying on top of renewals and, you know, being able to make sure that people are, you know, being attended to as they need to. So having kind of a good system to build those types of reports. But also, if you're thinking about as you're winding down saying, hey, is this a book of business that I'd like to sell? Right. And I think having a CRM in place really helps in two ways. One, it just kind of adds like a multiplier to that value of your Mm -hmm. business. You know, looking at, you know, a list of contacts in Outlook versus a well organized CRM that has, you know, exact stats of how much funded this year, how much funded last year, what are growth rates. Even more, how much with that client? Hey, I've done three mortgages for this client. Right. Yeah. This is what we did. And look back and see what the last one was so that if I'm the new person coming in, it's really easy for me to like, understand how many times this person's interacted with our company, right? Or with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. And for someone coming in, being able to say, I don't know how you talk to your clients. I don't know what they expect. Well, you know, that's all documented, right? It's that you don't Mm -hmm. have to scroll through a big inbox. It's a series of workflows and it's a client journey that you've built out that makes it very easy for them to just come and pick right up. Right. So it really kind of adds that value. And then, you know, in the same vein, exactly. It allows you to almost better, you know, if you are going into negotiation, negotiate, right? Being able to say, hey, this is the value of these types of clients. This is what, you know, I feel that is worthwhile in terms of, you know, the value of this book of business. So it helps add that multiplier and also gives you kind of the ammunition to go into those types of conversations and to be really confident. Right. Yeah. 
and it's like I think of it like data mining. So you've got this, right. you know, gold yeah. mine. But if you don't have a conveyor belt into the gold mine to pull out gold, then it's not super useful to you. And so having this, the CRM that you started with on the lead management and file management, then moved into you know team management and increasing complexity. Now you know it's like an ATM machine if yeah. you do it properly, obviously, right? And then the other thing is too is if somebody says they're going to sell you a book of business and then you can show all of the contact points that you've done over the course of the last five years, it's pretty easy to be like, oh, okay, it's not just a list of people that don't even remember who you are. You can actually right. see those interaction yeah. points and stuff. So I think that also is uh, helpful. So what are your sort of final thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that like all things, you know, what you're going to be doing in your career, CRM is no exception that you really have to think about it in the context of where you are, right? So understanding what that phase is that you're in, you know, what matters at each of those phases, whether it's, you know, lead and file management, building a team or, you know, winding down and understanding the value of your business, understanding where you fit right now, but also looking forward and being able to say, well, this is where I need to go. And this is how I need to modify my processes and my CRM to get me there. So keeping those types of things in mind can really help you progress through each of those different stages. Right. If you guys are listening to this and you want to check out Tom and his company's solution for this, which is what we use is bluemortgage.ca with no E. Um, those guys, they can show you. <laughs> no E in the middle. Right. Yeah. No, yeah, e, in the, yeah, yeah, no right. e in yeah. blue. Yeah. There's yeah, no yeah. E in mortgage. No, there's an E in mortgage. <laughs> it's e funny. When, mortgage, when you, yeah. when my email is Scott at I love mortgagebrokering.com, which is an enormous email. And right. If I go to yeah. a store and they're like, what's your email? I'm like, forget it. I'm not going to bother. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, I'm not buying it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, listen, I'm not giving you that email because you're not going to spell it right. You're going to. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, I, I digress. <laughs> Bluemortgage.ca. Blue has no E in it. Tom and his team can help you get set up. And then whether you're at a rookie stage, whether you're in the growth phase, or you're like, hey, I want to eventually sell this, having your data organized, keeping track of it, it makes it so much easier to do. So thanks, Tom, for coming to chat with us. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening, guys. And hopefully you got some ideas from Dave as well as Tom. One quick takeaway for you. If you're listening to this and you want to be like, hey, how do I like improve my mortgage business? We've literally got hundreds and hundreds of podcast episodes. Go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com. You can set up a free power search account. You can search all of our past podcast episodes and you can you know, find keywords of anything we talk about. So rates rising, interest rates, Dave LaRock. You can find anytime we talk to him. It's super cool. Go check it out. And thanks again for listening to this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.